Howdy how, this is Aswi, and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys? We are back again for another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I am your Knicks fan, AC. The Knicks didn't have the greatest free agency here, but you know we'll get to us on a different pod because today it's all about my guy, Eric Fullwood. Yes, sir! And his Lakers. And I know, Eric, you're not a, you don't identify so much as a Laker guy, but hey, you're all in on LeBron, so now that they are your squad. I, I feel like I've been pigeonholed into this, so like I might as well just own this shit. You like. got to roll with it now. You got to roll with it. <laughs> You're I'm officially guy. a Lakers guy. I mean, at this point, the Lakers are basically synonymous with Clutch and LeBron, right? Because this move, the reason we're having this pod, has LeBron's fingerprints all over it. What a time to be alive. So as you probably all know here, and if you haven't figured out from the title of our pod, somehow or the other, Russell Westbrook. Yes, that Russell Westbrook. The man who's the enigma, the fashion icon. One of the most athletic players of all time, UCLA and Los Angeles Legends, has now joined the LA Lakers. Yeah, man. Like, if I had to do a ranking of implausible things to happen this offseason, I assure you, Russell Westbrook going to LA wasn't even in my, like, I guess, 10 to a million chance of you know, somehow happening. I did not even remotely think that Russell Westbrook will be playing with LeBron and AD. Well, one of the greatest players of all time, by any measure, I mean, Russell Westbrook takes a lot of flack, joining the Los Angeles Lakers and joining the greatest player of his generation, LeBron James, and another top five to top 10 player in the league right now, Anthony Davis, and forming what you have to say is a super team. Rarely do you get to hear what the alternative option was before a blockbuster trade happens. But here, minutes before the news breaks that Westbrook's coming to LA, Woj, who pretty much bats a thousand, he's like rarely wrong. He reports that the Lakers are on the verge of completing a trade of Kyle Kuzma on Montrez Harrell for Buddy Heald. Now, while Heald is no all-star, and he certainly has limitations in his game, he is one of the world's best shooters. So, I mean, just from a logical standpoint, you, you put another great shooter next to Anthony Davis and LeBron James. It makes sense. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Sham supports the Lakers are actually going to go after Westbrook, of all people. Woj then recants the story. And the entire basketball world, including both of us, lose our collective minds. You and I had a telephone conversation about this like that lasted over an hour just reacting in the moment because we were so shocked by this and, and we didn't even know really what to make of it. Now that the dust has settled, we know that this trade between the Lakers and the Wizards actually wound up being part of a bigger, rare five-team trade. You rarely ever see five teams actually coming together, making a trade happen, where the Lakers traded away Kyle Kuzma, KCP, Montrezl Harrell, and the 22nd pick of the first round of this year's draft to get Russell Westbrook and three second round picks. So we have a lot to cover there because this, I mean, there's so many teams that made so many crazy moves, the Bulls, the Heat, everybody, but this is definitely the story of the offseason so far. So let's start with Russell Westbrook, the player. What kind of went through your mind when you heard that Westbrook would be joining the Lakers? I ain't even gonna fake up front. I was initially like distraught. (laughs) I was like, you need spacing. And I kept telling myself, you need spacing. With Buddy Hill, the one thing you would have gotten is spacing. Buddy Hill is probably one of the five or six best shooters in the world. I, I don't think there is going to be yeah. much Hands pushback down. from that. So at the very least, Buddy Hill on a team that had limitations last year, and one of the limitations was they seemed to lack spacing. It was like, okay. That shores that up. But then you throw Russell Westbrook on the team as constructed before. It's like, shit. Russ, I mean, like, Russ is a a dynamo of a player. But Russ ain't no shooter. So 
yeah, I was I was really like in my feels for a bit, but luckily it seemed like Rob Palinka started working a little magic subsequently. So yeah, I, I'm feeling a lot better right now. And we'll get to some of that magic and and how Palinka has really completely transformed a team that not even that long ago just won a championship. But just going back to Russell Westbrook for a second, this is a man who averaged a triple-double in three of the last four seasons. I remember growing up, the idea of averaging a triple-double seemed impossible. It was just Oscar Robertson who had done it and no one else. This is also the first regular season MVP that LeBron has ever played with. And LeBron has played with several Hall of Famers and even players like Dwayne Wade, who almost no matter what Westbrook does the rest of his career, he'll never be Dwayne Wade. But he hasn't actually played with anyone who was a regular season MVP in the way that, say, Kevin Durant has played with multiple such players in his career. And you have a guy in Russell Westbrook here who is the last, in some ways, of that dying breed of guy who just doesn't take nights off. And you're never going to hear Russell Westbrook missing a game because he needs load management. This guy plays his ass off every single day. And it's it's part of the reason why he's so incredible to behold. I can tell you he's my father's favorite basketball player because of how hard he plays. But he's also the very reason that makes him such an enigma. He uses that same energy sometimes recklessly. He gambles wildly at times. His shot selection could be atrocious. He's historically been a very poor playoff player. And then the biggest thing is what you described, Eric. He's a guy who's not only a poor shooter, but he's a volume shooter. So that means that lack of ability to hit shots, especially in the playoffs, becomes amplified. And now you're pairing him with a guy in LeBron James who also historically wants the ball in his hands. So how do you see the fit with LeBron in particular going? I was reticent when I thought LeBron and AD were going to stay playing the three and the four. But now that I'm almost certain from hearing or reading about some of their conversations with each other, where LeBron and AD brought up them playing the four and the five, oh, I think this could be magic. Like, if LeBron and AD are playing with Russ and 60% of the time to 70% of the time, they're at the power forward and the center, and you put two other shooters, they can be tough, 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 tough. So, yeah, I wasn't, like, feeling the potential fit initially, but now I think there's a great possibility that we could see something great. I think that when you talk about Russell Westbrook, the player, it's very easy to miss what he does bring and focus on what he doesn't because his mistakes are so loud, right? This is a guy who is going to completely lose his man on a possession. He's a guy who's going to gamble wildly and then lead to a wide open three. He's a guy who's going to take a terrible shot at the worst time. But some of the things that he brings to the table, I think, do help LeBron in some ways. For instance, when is the last time LeBron had a guard who could penetrate like this, but also pass? It was probably Dwayne Wade back in the day. But I don't think that Dwayne Wade at that time was quite the athlete that Westbrook is now, although I think he was a much better all-around player. Yeah, facts. I mean, Westbrook is pound for pound. He might be the greatest athlete in NBA history. But Dwayne Wade was a better all-around talent because of defense, of course, as well. And I, I wonder if LeBron, you know, listen, LeBron and Rob Polinka are not idiots, right? There's certainly a world in which this entire experiment backfires badly. But I bet you LeBron looked at Russell Westbrook and said, here's a guy who can carry the load a little bit. Here's a guy who, when I'm on the bench for the 15 minutes I spend there in a playoff game, we don't get you know outscored by 12 points like has happened over the last several years. Westbrook, in some ways, gives LeBron the opportunity to prolong his career because he can take that load himself. He can score 20. He can run an offense. There's this misperception of Russell Westbrook as a shoot-first player. It is true that he is a high-usage player, but a lot of that is because he can't shoot, he has the ball in his hands. But make no mistake, this guy is an amazing passer. He's not just passing to collect triple-doubles. This is a guy who's evolved a lot over the course of his career from a guy who basically primarily passed when the defense collapsed on him to now someone who is actually one of the best interior passes in the NBA, someone who's going to really get easy lobs and, and dump-off passes to likes of Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard. I also think 
he will be able to generate offense for the Lakers shooters and to LeBron himself. And there's this misnomer, I think, that LeBron is not a good shooter. And I, I get that shooting is maybe the weakest part of his game. But this is a guy who is, if you look at stats on a, on a website like B-Ball Index, run by Tim Cranges, he's an A-quality perimeter shot maker. But he gets very poor looks at the rim, like D or F looks over the last several seasons. He doesn't have anyone assisting to him. If you give him wide open shots and he's taking less step back three-pointers, I do think LeBron can play off the ball at least a little bit more. Would you agree, Eric? Oh, yeah, fact. I I definitely think LeBron is a much better shooter than people realize. I mean, even in the playoffs, let's let's talk about when he played with Cleveland. When he had a bunch of, like, floor spacers, so he got room to navigate. If the ball was ever kicked out to LeBron and he had space, he was like money to knock down a shot. So... I definitely think he has the potential to play more of ball. I think one of the other important things is you mentioned like Russ being able to penetrate and get looks for other people. Trick question, AC. How many lobs do you think Dennis Schroeder completed to Anthony Davis last season? Oh, boy. I mean, to be fair, they didn't play that much together, right? 37 games. Yeah. How, How many lobs? I mean, it can't be more than 10. I, I would be shocked one, if it was more than One 10. lob, AC. One lob. <laughs> oh, wow. I actually looked this stat up. One <laughs> lob. I mean, that's embarrassing. Like, like, so take that. Now take Russ Westbrook, one of the NBA's best easy look generators for bigs. Shit, he was making Steven Adams around the room. Looked fantastic a couple of years ago. Imagine him with AD now. Imagine him sometimes with LeBron. It's going to be Bedlam. Like, full stop. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy here who led the league in assists just last season. I mean, this is not some washed-up guy we're talking about. I get that he's 32. He's probably the back end of his prime. But he was very capable just last year on a roster that featured starters like Alex Len out there, right? I mean... You know, when he came back from his quad injury, Alex Westbrook, <laughs> yeah, Alex Len was playing. I mean, they played Owl Neto a huge amount of minutes as a starter on this Wizards team. And last season, Westbrook was terrible the first half of the year because he was coming back from that quad injury, the same quad injury that hindered him in the bubble playoffs. Once he got better from that, like really post All-Star break, Russell Westbrook carried the Washington Wizards on his back. I mean, this was an under-talented team, and he led them to the playoffs. So he's still a capable basketball player. Now, he's a highly flawed basketball player, specifically when it comes to playoff basketball. And I think that's one of the areas where I I think there are going to be questions asked of Westbrook. Teams will leave him open. We've seen the Lakers themselves do this to Russell Westbrook. In the bubble playoffs, they put Anthony Davis on him, basically, and he was like 10 feet off of him and just protecting the paint. Good playoff defenses will try this against Brook. But... I'll tell you what, Russell Westbrook at least makes their regular season floor way higher than it was when they had to rely so much on a 37-year-old LeBron James and an often injured Anthony Davis to carry their team. So I think the biggest takeaway from that, and I think you make a very great point about the regular season floor. Like I've been looking at like plus minus when, when guys are on the court versus off the court. And the gap with LeBron Lakers teams when LeBron is on the court versus when he sits. It's like you go from an all-world team that is outscoring teams by any year between 10 and 15 points over an accumulation of like 100 possessions to a team that's losing by two to like five points at any given time. So just having Russ there when LeBron sets At least you know that they're not going to always be in a deficit if LeBron is sitting now. Which, last year, it was almost like, it was absolute. The Lakers are about to give up a lead while LeBron is sitting. How are we going to mitigate this and get LeBron back into the game where the lead that they gave up isn't something that's insurmountable? I I totally agree. I think he's going to carry those bench units. The other thing that Westbrook brings to the table that not enough people are talking about is 
he actually fits their identity in one particular way. LeBron and Anthony Davis are overwhelming athletes, right? Russell Westbrook fits them in that sense. Yes, he may not be this 45% three-point shooter, but he's another guy who's an overwhelming athlete. And the first way this is going to make a difference is in transition. When they won the championship, the Lakers were a team that played a relatively slow pace, but when they ran, they were brutally efficient at it. And they actually were able to do it throughout the entire playoffs. Even in the finals, they were able to maintain their kick-aheads to Anthony Davis, dunks, and you know early post-ups. They were super efficient at that. Last year, they were really bad at that, actually. They, they just didn't do it nearly as often or as efficiently. Having Russell Westbrook is like having a transition offense unto itself. But in the half court, that physicality can play a part as well. How many teams have the kind of athletes to keep up with the likes of LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Westbrook? Three guys at three different positions who can be that overwhelming. You'll be lucky to have two guys who can keep up with them physically. To have three is just asking a lot. So, yes, their spacing might not be ideal. But given the other shooters that they've added to this roster, we'll talk about in a little bit, I do think there's a way in that their overwhelming athleticism is just too much to handle for the average team. You know, Eric, we talked earlier about how when the Rockets played the Lakers, the Lakers had Anthony Davis on Westbrook standing in the paint, basically. But just think about what that means. They didn't just put anybody in Russell Westbrook. Even though he was standing in the paint, it was still Anthony Davis. They still had to commit their best and most athletic overall defender to Russell Westbrook just because the threat of him driving is still so much. So even when your team is scheming against him, you can't just have some bum out there guarding Russell Westbrook. You have to commit an athlete to that position. If you're committing your best athlete to Russell Westbrook, it means you have some guy who's not your best athlete on LeBron James driving at the rim. Exactly. And that's why the more I think about this, the more optimistic I am that not only will Russell Westbrook extend LeBron's career, but there's a world in which they can figure out how to play together and actually be pretty dynamic at it. Yeah, I I think so too. The one thing that I thought was interesting about them getting together, I thought about it. So LeBron has been in the league basically two decades. So for two decades, LeBron has been a top 30 player. For let's say 17 seasons, he's been a top 15 player. For 15 seasons, he's been a top five player. The mileage on him at this point is so heavy. And just to have a guy like Russ that in regular season games, LeBron could kind of go off to the other wing and kind of walk up court while Russ is working, has the ball in his hand, facilitating, creating shots for others. I mean, that has to be a boon at the very least, for when they actually do get to the playoffs, and again, knock on wood, and then you're getting much more, like, concentrated, like, defensive efforts against you. So I'm sure LeBron feels great and very optimistic going into this next season. Let's talk a little bit about the Lakers as a whole. So it's kind of hard to picture this, but the Lakers actually won a championship less than a year ago. It was actually October of 2020 that they won that game six against Miami and became NBA champions. And now as we stand here today, only four members of that championship team are still on the Lakers. That's LeBron, Anthony Davis, Taylor Horton Tucker, who barely played at all in that run. And of course, Dwight Howard, who left and is now back with the team. So any sense of continuity that had been building over that time is, is pretty much lost. This is a new team. They're going to have to kind of experiment, find their roles, find out who the starters are. I don't even know rotations, what they're going to be like. And of course, Westbrook himself is going to have to figure out how to play with Anthony Davis and LeBron in particular. The other thing is they've actually had a total shift in identity. They went from defensive juggernauts to potentially becoming a team that has several defensive seams. Because the Lakers had the best defense in the NBA last season from the beginning of the season all the way to the end of the season. And if you think about it, that's kind of incredible because Anthony Davis and LeBron James not only missed time, they missed time at the same time. And those are probably their two best defenders. And yet they maintain this level of defense. And part of that was obviously Frank Vogel is a defensive genius. But part of it is also they had great defensive personnel between the likes of KCP, Alex Caruso, and Kyle Kuzma, who developed into a plus defender. 
On the other hand, now, while they still have some quality defensive forwards and big men like with Anthony Davis, LeBron, Dwight, and Marc Gasol, they have much shakier wing and guard defenders on the team. So talk to me a little bit about the defensive side and some of these new additions. What do you expect from them? I don't think the Lakers are going to be the number one defense next year. But you don't actually need them to be the number one defense. What you need from the Lakers, because I suspect with all of the spacing they have acquired, they're going to be an elite offense. What you need now is at least a top 10 defense or somewhere around that area. And this is one good thing about having Frank Vogel as your coach. Outside of his years coaching the tanking Orlando Magic, Frank Vogel has never coached a team outside of the top eight in defense. Wow. That's such an incredible stat. It's not like he had the most stacked rosters. Absolutely not. And we even saw it last year. We were really surprised that they were still the number one defense when AD, arguably, when he's healthy, the best or second best defender in the league. And LeBron, who last year was looking like an all-defense defender. While those two guys were out, they were the second best defense in the league, which overall made them still the best defense in the league for the entire year. So, schematically, I'm certain that Frank Vogel will figure something out that this team won't be horrible defensively. A quick note on Frank Vogel, he also got a contract extension recently. The exact terms of that are unknown at this point, but hey, he was going into a contract season and it's always good when your coach has his job secured so he feels you know no pressure and he can sort of roll out whatever lineups he wants. And, and I think he deserves it. I think he's been a, done a really good job overall over his two seasons as the Lakers coach. He's going to find a way to mitigate people like Russ Westbrook, who historically has been like this freelancer who has done whatever the hell he wants to do and makes head-scratching defensive decisions. Now, let's talk about some of the pickups and how they play defensively. I think Ken Bazemore is probably the pick of the bunch with his combination of relentless effort and length. He can gamble a bit. He can be a little bit reckless at times, but I thought you know he's kind of flashed signs of, of being a plus defender throughout his career, really. And I thought in Golden State that those signs became almost materialized into a guy who was much more positionally sound as well. He's actually one of the best guys in the league, both at deflections and also at flat-out pickpocketing opponents. So that's a nice combination. That means he's an active defender. He can create turnovers, which will be useful for the Lakers in transition. Trevor Ariza is the other sort of guy coming in with a defensive reputation. He's not the defender he was when he was young, but he's still very versatile. This is a guy who basically guarded every position, literally even spent more than 10% of his time guarding both point guards and center. So he's very switchable. He's not locked down, but you can rely on him there. But apart from those two additions, the remaining guys they added range from passable to downright awful. And let's start with the biggest name, which is Russell Westbrook. The guy's going to play a lot of minutes, almost no matter what he does on defense. Now in college, Westbrook was considered an elite defender. And it's part because, as Eric said, he possesses a lot of great physical attributes. He's got strength, he's got speed, he's got explosiveness. But he's been a negative defender for some time now he's especially poor off the ball there's few players who gamble more than he does he's completely out of position far too often he gets back cut quite a bit so he's particularly vulnerable against teams that run heavy motion he has shown that even in recent years he can be solid on the ball when he wants to be and eric you mentioned frank vogel i think there's a way that vogel can make westbrook work i think the first thing you can do is you can put him at the point of attack. You can't ask him to chase around shooting guards unless you just want to concede wide open threes. He will often veer toward getting a defensive rebound instead of chasing a guy to three-point line. It's one of the reasons he has so many defensive rebounds. He could also benefit from a switch-heavy scheme. Now, that's not what the Lakers have run. I don't think it's what they're going to run this year either. They tend to run drop coverages more often than not. Last year, we saw them running more cash hedges and more aggressive screen coverages. But in the playoffs, when you employ Anthony Davis, you're probably going to switch a lot. And that really does favor Westbrook because instead of him chasing around guards, if there's a switch, he can switch onto a big man where his strength and his physicality and even his rebounding come into play. Very few guards can actually out-rebound a big man. 
but Westbrook can. So that's kind of a good way to use him and maybe sort of unlock that old Westbrook from college days where he was considered this elite defensive prospect. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with you. Like one thing we know, it becomes increasingly hard to maintain all world defense the more of an offensive burden you have. We've seen Kawhi not be quite the defender. Now, he still can be the defender that he was in San Antonio, right? But he's not quite the defender. And and it's a combination of things. Some of it's injuries to his legs that have happened fairly often and significantly over the last four or five years. But this tracks. It's been that way for LeBron. It's been that way for Kawhi. Historically, it's been that way. But one thing we know, now that he plays with LeBron, a person who I would argue, though Russ averages more assists than LeBron, LeBron is an even greater passer. Some of his shot creation that was put on his plate for other teams is not going to be quite the same for the Lakers, even though he will still get a fairly significant amount of the burden. So I'm, again, not thinking that he's going to be a great defender, but if he can be somewhat reminiscent of his abilities in the Thunder days, I think that's a a positive. Well, maybe Russell Westbrook has hope, but these next two guys, I'm sorry to say, have basically zero hope. The first of them is Carmelo Anthony, a guy that I followed very closely. (laughs) Hold on, hold on. (laughs) All the guys, and they have some other guys that... (laughs) aren't good defenders that they just signed. Why you got to call Melo out, man? Why you got to I mean, call Hoodie, Hoodie Melo, uh, <laughs> who looks like he's in the best shape of his life right now? You got to well, call Hoodie Melo out. Listen, man, I'm scarred from years of Melo. That's when he was younger and, and still in his athletic prime as well, giving inconsistent effort on defense. Sadly, since then, he's actually regressed quite a bit. I, I do think that Melo offensively has now turned into the kind of role player who could help the Lakers. He's, you know, taking a lot more spot-up shots. He's become a very good three-point shooter. And I think in spot minutes, he could be helpful. But this man is so bad defensively. He's in the bottom 15% of all NBA players in basically every single defensive advanced stat, including defensive Raptor, luck-adjusted, defensive real plus-minus, defensive blocks plus-minus, and D. LeBron, which is one of the newer advanced stats on B-Ball Index. He was also in the bottom 10% in terms of loose ball recovery rate. And this guy barely moves. He was in the bottom 10% in terms of defensive miles traveled per minute. Yeah, can you imagine the kind of things they track these days? Yikes! They track how much you move. And he was also amongst the bottom of the league in terms of steals and deflections. So he's not like using his hands at all to do anything. And by the way, he guarded some of the opponent's easiest players basically never guarding even core players much less starters all-star players or all nba players so he's basically guarding the worst players on the court and still sucking at it i mean you can't get any worse than that i mean i guess the hope is that one of his closest friends is there lebron and there's going to be like some type of (laughs) accountability buddy situation going on here sure keep telling yourself (laughs) where Braun goes over and says hey Mello look you were guarding whoever's the 11th man and you just let him drive by and you didn't move your hands to try to get a swipe or you didn't even position yourself to try to attempt to close them all you need to do better then Mello's gonna say hey bruh you're right and then Mello's gonna be an average defender I mean, that's how I like to think of it in my head. <laughs> I, you know, I can already see it happening. It's going to be a critical playoff game, fourth quarter, for some reason, because of his connections to LeBron. Carmelo Anthony's out there. The teams are routinely going after him and switch after switch after switch. You're losing your mind. You're crying in our text thread. And I'm going to remember this conversation. I'm going to talk about how you believed deep down that somehow LeBron could magically turn one of the worst defenders in the NBA into a plus defender. And, and you know, I have the habit of looking at these LeBron teams a little optimistically and then having these temper tantrums when it inevitably goes south. So I can absolutely tell you that you are probably with a 90% certainty going to have me do exactly 
what you're prophesying me doing within the next like seven or eight months. Listen, for his sake, as a guy who's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day, I, I hope he actually plays a legitimate role in this team. I don't want him to get a Gary Payton ring, you know, hitting two shots and saying they just want a ring. I, I hope he actually plays a role, but I think his role needs to be very limited because of his defensive limitations. So I just want to respond to something you say about Melo. And I can't believe me, one of the guys who historically has been the most down on Melo. But you said one thing that was interesting, AC. You said you want for him not to be Gary Payton, where it's like you hit two shots and you're like, oh, yeah, I got a ring. You want him to actually significantly or not significantly, but him to actually have a place on this team where he's contributing to them winning. But at the same time, you subsequently then said you can't win with Melo contributing significantly. So do you <laughs> want him to be Gary Payton or do you not want him to be Gary Payton? Because I'm getting mixed signals, dude. Yeah, what I'm saying is I feel like it'd be great if he could somehow play a role. I just don't know if it's realistic that he plays a role and they win. Now, let me be very clear. I, I do think that he has a role to play. It just... It's going to be maybe in like a 15 or 20 minute spot guy on bench units hitting some shots. That should be his role. Or, you know, even if you, let's say on offensive possession, he comes in, you replace, say, like a Trevor Ariza or a Kent Bazemore with Carmelo Anthony, and you need a bucket. I mean, hell, I'll roll Carmelo Anthony all day. He's proven that he can make big shots. He's not going to be afraid of the moment. That would be awesome. But if he's closing games routinely, especially against the better playoff teams, the Lakers will be in trouble just because of his defensive limitations, not because of anything else. I actually think that at this stage of his career, he understands his offensive role and what it should be, but he's just not good enough defensively. Shout out to Melo, though. His career scoring average is still at 23 points per game, though he hasn't averaged over 20 points per game for some seasons. That tells you in his prime what an offensive savant he was. Bro, this is the 10th leading scorer in NBA history we're talking about. I mean, this man was no slouch. There's a lot of things that you can criticize about Carmelo Anthony in his career. His lack of willingness to pass. His lack of willingness to do the other things besides scoring necessary to win at the highest level. But this man could score in so many ways. And by the way, still can. I mean, he still has that mid-range ability if he needs to. He can still shoot from deep. He still has incredible footwork, incredible touch. It's why like, he still has a role that he could play. I just wonder if, if he can hold up when teams target him over and over again. But maybe the combination of being flanked by the likes of Anthony Davis or Dwight Howard next to him will probably you know, help him. So maybe there's a world in which I'm wrong and we look back and we're like, wow, I can't believe that Carmelo Anthony. It's just hard for me to imagine right now. The other guy who I think had so much value offensively to the Lakers, but is such a poor defender that I don't know how much he's going to play, especially under Frank Vogel, is Wayne Ellington. Because Wayne Ellington, offensively, he's not just a spot-up shooter. He's one of the best motion shooters in the league. This guy can hit contested threes. He can hit off curls. He can hit off screens. He is far better than any shooter the Lakers have had on their team over the last several years. But basically every stat I said about Carmelo Anthony also applies to Wayne Ellington. He's just an atrocious defender. When you're already rolling out Russell Westbrook and potentially Carmelo Anthony playing you know, a decent chunk of minutes, I don't know how much the Lakers can afford to have another perimeter defender as poor as Wayne Ellington. I feel like if he's going to play, he's going to have to be paired with the best defensive players they have out there. He's going to be in the Quinn Cook role. I agree. It's a bit of an overrated signing in a sense that just like Quinn Cook or Troy Daniels, that were mm -hmm. there two years ago, that you look at their three-point percentages and you think, oh, wow, they're going to be so helpful. But if you can't play defense, you're never going to play under Frank Vogel, and, and probably you shouldn't if you're trying to win a championship. Yeah, facts. So you mentioned, Eric, about their potential be dynamic offensive team. They really have shooters pretty much everywhere. So I just want to take a second here to go through a post by Tim Kranjus, who does really great work, especially when it comes to covering the Lakers. And he, he, he talks about the shot making and the quality of shots for the Lakers players who left the team versus the players that came in. So you look at the players who left the team. KCP was an excellent shooter. Kuzma, he had took a lot of tough shots and he made a good amount of them. Still pretty good. Caruso, he was getting really good looks and he was making them at a B rate. Still, still pretty solid. But then you get to Wes Matthews, Schroeder, Markeith Morris. And then of course you have your non-shooters like Montrezl Harrell and Drummond who are no longer on the team. 
Now you look at the guys this season, Kent Bazemore, Kendrick Nunn, Wayne Ellington, Malik Monk, and Carmelo Anthony. The only guy whose numbers might kind of skew the other way is a Trevor Arizo. So overall, you're talking about a bunch of guys who will probably will play better on the Lakers because they're going to get much better shots playing next to LeBron, Westbrook, and AD. And, and there are a couple of guys on here in terms of shot making that are just flat out a level higher than anybody the Lakers had last year. I mean, yeah, man, that's <laughs> it's like their agenda with how they built the team and what they wanted their underlining theme for how they were going to operate. It completely did a 180. So these guys are going to light it up. I, I just don't see how a bunch of guys who seem to be, as far as like shot making, they convert a, a shit ton of very difficult shots. Now you're playing with Russ. Now you're playing with LeBron. Now you're on the floor with AD who, you know, he, he himself will get doubled at times because he's a dynamic scorer. Like, your job's just going to be incredibly, incredibly easy. So they made up for what I was thinking when I first saw Buddy Hill turn into Russell Westbrook. And I was like distraught and like I had consternation. Oh, like no spacing, no spacing, no spacing. Well, they have spacing in spades now. They're going to be a dynamic offensive team. What's interesting to me is that there was a formula around LeBron teams. We knew based upon really the last 10 years of his career, if you put shooters around LeBron James, he will generate elite offense and that's usually good enough to get to an nba finals in fact in every season he's not been injured in it's gotten his team to the nba finals somehow on the lakers even going back to their first season when they had all these really ball dominant guys who are not really shooters so they had you know lance stevenson rondo etc and even the championship year they didn't really put shooting around lebron they put guys who could make shots but they had other primary uses to a team now they've gone all in on creating space and maybe that's because it's the only way you could possibly make russell westbrook work with lebron and ad or maybe just make russell westbrook work at all at the highest level but i do think you're going to see again a return to lebron leading the lakers to a top five offense which they didn't even come close to having last season they were a below average offense even when lebron and ad were playing so that's an interesting shift and i do think that People are underestimating just how dangerous LeBron, Westbrook, and AD can be if you give them some space. The real question will be, of course, will they take space away from each other in some ways because of maybe the lack of a truly great shooter between them, unlike, say, Brooklyn that has three snipers playing as their three stars. I do want to ask you, though, Eric, about two of the steals that Rob Polinka got. So we have Kendrick Nunn for the taxpayer mid-level exception which I don't think anybody saw coming. I mean, I, I thought so, he'd get more than $10 million a year. So they got him for what Dennis Schroeder just signed tonight <laughs> with the Boston Celtics. Yeah, well, Basically. yeah, we, yeah, we got to get to Dennis Schroeder for sure. But yeah, so they got Kendrick Nunn for an incredible bargain. This is a young player who is an elite shot maker who slots perfectly as the backup one or even could play some two for you. And then they got Malik Monk, someone who really had a pretty dynamic season in Charlotte last year. Now, his first few seasons in the league, he couldn't shoot, which was his supposed one ability really had coming into the NBA. You know, he's also a really great athlete, but he was going to be this, this slasher who could also hit threes at a high rate. And he kind of was neither. Last year, he had this breakout season and some of the other, the Lakers got him on a minute so tell me a little bit about these two guys and what you think they could bring to the Lakers. AC, I feel like you're leaving me out the dry, making me be the bad guy and mention this. Okay. We both know why the Lakers were able to get Malik Monk <laughs> for what they got him for and how they got him. And you know that it has to do with Peruvian marching power. <laughs> yeah, so... Um... <laughs> interesting uh bringing him to la of all places where the stars are known to dabble in some nose candy so yeah i so like look it's it looks fantastic that they're getting him and i absolutely think lebron seems to engender this environment where he's like kind of like a mother hen to these young guys so i suspect 
around LeBron, he's going to have his eye on him that he's not going to be getting in much trouble. And I'm not, I'm not trying to like emasculate the guy and, and make him a kid. He's not a kid grown man, but LeBron at like LeBron's 15 years older than a cat. So he's almost old enough to be his dad. So I, I think there's that foundation in place that Malik will not dabble in some of the vices that he earlier did. But if last season is any indicator and he was a pretty like vaunted draft pick coming out of Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. If any of this is any indicator of what he can be, Malik Monk, I was looking at it because like a lot of guys, you were talking about this kind of with Wayne Ellington, like a lot of guys are spot up, knocked down three-point shooters. But it seems like Malik Monk hits threes on different platforms. So <laughs> he can take you off the dribble. He can be a spot up guy. Shit, that even throw in the fact that he's one of the more dynamic 6'3 guys who can play above the room. They got a gem in him. And then you add the fact that, like you said, they got Kendrick Nunn for, is that basically the mid-level exception? Like 5.9 million? Yeah, it's like, the taxpayer mid-level. So yeah. basically any team in the NBA to the cap space could have offered as much as they wanted. Then the teams that are not tax teams can offer the full mid-level, which is basically you know, nearly $10 million. And so any of those teams could have had Kendrick Nunn and instead he opts to take the taxpayer mid-level, which is, I think, significantly below his market value for a young player who came off an incredible shooting season in which he was, if you combine his shot making, his finishing and his playmaking, I mean, this sounds crazy, but he's on a short list of players obviously on much lower volume, but on the likes of Kawhi Leonard, Steph, LeBron, etc. Like this is crazy that they got a player with this kind of shot making on their team for this little so that list it had like seven eight other guys and outside of Shea who's within a couple of years of his age you had Stephen Curry Zach Levine Jason Tatum Tatum's also within a couple of years and Luca but Kyrie James Harden LeBron James Shea Kawhi Leonard and Kendrick Nunn like most of the guys on that list are like seven eight year pros at least the fact that he's on this elite list with guys who are either all all-stars or all NBA guys, that just tells you that the Lakers committed highway robbery, even getting him for what they got him for. I think the concern will be how much is he going to play with the stars? Because I think he has the shooting to play, you know, the two for them. But are they really going to have two six three players as their backcourt, neither of whom is a particularly good defender? I, I think Kendrick Nunn flashes some potential as maybe an off-ball guy to play that KCP role chasing guys around. But man, it's a pretty small backcourt. And if you're only using him when, say, Westbrook is off the floor, so what does that mean? He's, he's playing like 15 minutes a game? I mean, I don't know. That's It seems like a waste of his talent. So it, they're going to be a little bit creative here in how they get him on the floor. Maybe they're going to you know, go really small with multiple guards out there. But I, I do think that he deserves to be out there. You know what's wild, AC? We didn't what? even mention Taylor Horton Tucker. I know. That's the guy they're betting big on, right? Because he's the well, guy they, they gave that contract to. Clearly, like, they let Caruso go, gave it to Talon, which I kind of get it. Like, Talon, as far as his upside, like, it seems like he has infinitely more upside. And I keep forgetting he doesn't turn 21 until the season starts, which is crazy because he looks like he's 32. So how are they going to get him on the floor? And clearly by the contract that they gave him, they're expecting a significant leap from last year to this year. I think with Taylor, he's going to come out of two things for him. He has to hit threes because when you're playing with Westbrook and LeBron and Davis, if you can't hit a three, you're just not going to play. And last season, he did not hit them with any kind of consistency. The other thing is, he flashes tremendous potential on the ball defensively because he's strong. He's really, really long. And, you know, he's a good base under him. But he can't just make sophomore mistakes like he made last season where he was collapsing into the paint, leaving wide open some of the best three-point shooters in the NBA or overhelping when he didn't need to. Just making, like, 
mental errors. They can't afford that. So if you can clean that up, which both those things can be fixed with experience and practice, then he has a huge role to play. Otherwise, they're going to probably end up moving him because I don't even know how he's going to get consistent rotation minutes if he can't fix those two things. And Lord knows last year, he made a lot of mistakes to the point that I would have my tantrums and routinely get on our group chat and rant about, oh, you can't play him at the end of games. And I don't know what they're going to do with him come the playoffs, which, I mean, they didn't really have to worry about that because they were knocked out in the first round. So hopefully it's an improvement and they seemingly invested in him. So looking forward to seeing how he actually meshes with this team. He definitely has to suddenly learn to space the floor. The last big topic I want to talk about is the players the Lakers lost because, you know, you had a couple of key pieces who were there on the championship team and then a couple of guys who were brought in where it didn't quite all work out. So let's start with the guys who were on the championship team. Three guys who were really not just successes in terms of the fact that they were part of the championship, but they were also great developmental stories in that you had, you know, Kyle Kuzma and Alex Caruso were, one of them was drafted late in the first round. The other one was undrafted. And then you had KCP, who they kind of brought along maybe as a favor to clutch. But then over the course of his time there, he developed a totally different kind of player. He became a really reliable shooter. So why don't we start with him, actually? Let's start with KCP. In my opinion... KCP was the third best player on that championship team that won. And I think he's by far the player they're going to miss most. If you could somehow just have KCP on this current Lakers roster, they might be title favorites because this guy does so many little things well. Tell me about KCP and what the Lakers will be missing with them gone. Before I can tell you about KCP and what they're missing, I have a question for you, AC. And this is about KCP. You remember that stretch two seasons ago where all of Lakers fandom was talking about how the Lakers needed to flip him for anything they could get because he couldn't hit a shot early in the season. Yeah, it was like the first month of the season from what I recall. My man couldn't buy a shot and subsequently started being clutched, knocking them down, playing, if not elite defense, very good defense. That dude was amazing for the Lakers. I'm actually saddened that him, and mostly him, that he's gone. I don't know how you could have gotten Russ without him, considering that it seemed that Bradley Bill wanted to play with him, and this is a guy that he's very close with, and he asked management to try to make it happen. If Russ was going to be going to the Lakers, KCP had to be a part of the package. But man, during the title run, a lot of clutch shots. A lot of being an irritant defensively. It's not that KCP was an elite defender. And in fact, oftentimes when he was matched up with someone like Kawhi Leonard, he would get out muscled. But what he did do extraordinarily well is that this guy, as I've said in many podcasts, is one of the best lock and trail defenders in the NBA. He's fantastic at chasing guys off the ball through screens. He's a huge reason why the Lakers shut down Duncan Robinson in the NBA Finals, how they bothered Tyler Hero in the NBA Finals. He's just one of the best at that, at finding a way to slither through screens. The other thing about KCP is he was a huge part of the Lakers' transition engine. This man sprinted all the time. He's actually one of the fastest players in the league at the guard position, at least at the off-guard position. So he kind of fit their identity that way. I think he'll be hugely missed, and it, it kind of sucks that he was almost, in a way, salary filler, although I, I know that Beal wanted to play with him. It's almost like they use him more than anything else in some match contracts with Westbrook, which, which seems a shame to me because that's like treating him like a negative ass, which I don't think he was at all. And I think the same thing goes for Kyle Kuzma, who, to me, got an extremely bum rap by Lakers fans. I get it. He wasn't the player that they maybe thought he was going to be based upon his rookie season. But I would argue that the player that he became is much more conducive to winning. And, and you have a guy in Kuzma who was content, you know, not only giving up his starting role because he was playing behind two players who I still think could have accommodated him if they were willing to play their actual best positions at the four on the five. But, you know, since they didn't want to do that, Kuzma was content coming off the bench. He never complained when he was, you know, not in starting lineups. He might make a a fun comment to the media here or there, but you never got the sense that he was a problem for the team. And he developed in a lot of ways where he became this defensive player that he wasn't earlier in his career. 
and he found ways to be effective without the ball. There were so many games against good teams where he would make a ton of offensive rebounds and just do little things to help where his shot wasn't falling. And it's one of those things where maybe if his shot fell more often, he would probably have been a bigger part of the team. But hey, I think that he has an opportunity in Washington to potentially make a name for himself. Yeah, my guy, he can actually score. He didn't get the opportunity the last two seasons with the Lakers to actually have the ball in his hand. That first season, he was allowed to freelance and like create a lot more than he was when AD came. The only issue I would have, and I'm admittedly a person who likes Kyle Kuzma, I think, like you said, he has a lot of skills that are conducive to playing for a winning team. And I, I think he'll definitely help out the Wizards. I'm admittedly a Kyle Kuzma stan, and I I want the best for him, and I agree with you that he's conducive to helping a team actually win. He, he's learned and developed a lot of winning qualities in the last year playing with the Lakers. The only thing I'm thinking that there's going to be some type of logjam, considering they have Denny and Rui, who they drafted in consecutive years, and they all, Rui, Denny, and Kyle seem to be similar size, and also skill sets that aren't distinctly divergent from each other. So we'll see how that goes, but I definitely wish the guy the best, and I I think he has a lot of talent. That's a great point about him maybe finding himself going from one logjam at the forward position to another in Washington. One guy who might also be headed to a bit of a logjam, but I think that he's just too useful to ever not get minutes, is Alex Caruso. And I I think losing Alex Caruso this offseason is one of the things that the Lakers may come to regret down the road. Because, first of all, he was an unrestricted free agent whom the Lakers had full bird rights to, which meant that the Lakers could pay him anything they wanted to. It didn't matter what their team salary was. They could go over the cap to sign him. And, of course... At a certain point, there'll be luxury tax implications, but they could sign him. And he reportedly wanted to get a discount to come back. And when he got his offer from the Bulls, he came back to the Lakers and they didn't want to negotiate with them. They just kind of said, hey, you know, congratulations. And you know, Alex Caruso is a huge win for the Lakers and a guy that they found as a undrafted player who then played through the G League and then they, you know, made it as one of their end of the bench guys and then became a regular rotation player. And he's become almost this meme, sadly, that, you know, the, the, the crew show, the goat, all this stuff like that. But I think those who actually watch this guy play would understand that he's so damn valuable to a contending team. Because, you know, KCP, we mentioned before, as a good defender. Caruso is an elite defender. This guy got all defensive team votes last season, playing barely any minutes. He's elite on and off the ball. He's one of the best point of attack defenders statistically in the NBA. He's also fantastic off the ball, at you know, chasing guys around screens and stuff like that. He's a willing passer and he's a guy who's a ball mover. So like if you have other stars, he's the kind of guy who can cut well off of them and make those extra passes. So he played so well with LeBron in particular. Basically every combination of, of lineups you look at best two-man lineup best three-man lineup best five-man lineup for the lakers will include lebron and alex caruso so to lose that kind of guy for a financial thing is a bit tough but you know before we get to the financial side of it what do you think about alex caruso and what he kind of meant to this team the last few years and what losing him might mean bruh <laughs> i was such a stand for caruso I don't know if you remember this and you were like, calm down. You might be putting the cart before the horse. I told you, I could see Alex Caruso consistently in the next couple of years. And I was like, very soon, if not now, being a top 70 player in the league. Do you remember that? I do. And I actually, if if I said you were wrong, then I actually don't think you're wrong at all. I mean, at least in terms of a role player, there's few that do what he does. What he does is doubly valuable for a contender in a playoff team. I'm going to take this win. It's a it's a rare win against you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you to agree with me or something. Bro, so, even, a, even a broken clock is right twice a day. Right? Hey, hey, hey. I'm patting myself <laughs> on my back right now. But yeah, so like I'm clearly part of the Caruso hive as well. Like it seems, I think my issue seeing Russ come to the team probably wasn't even about Russ. Now, as I'm talking to you, it was about these three guys leaving. And while rooting for the Lakers, something I never thought I would do a day in my life, (laughs) I 
actually started having some type of like connection to those three guys specifically. And I never realized it until we're having this conversation because Caruso, he looks like he should be the branch manager of Staples. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, Not Staples, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to miss all three. I, I don't know which one I'm going to miss the most, but I, I think that all of them could have been a valuable piece on this Lakers team because all of them, to varying degrees, play defense. So it is what it is. To me, the one they'll rue the most is Caruso, not because he's the best of the three players, but because he's the one they lost for nothing. Because the other two, I still think their salary being treated essentially as negative salary, salary filler, undervalued them, but at least you got back Westbrook, right? So you got something tangible back. They could have kept this guy. He wanted to take a disc out to stay there, and they didn't do it, so it's purely a luxury tax thing. And I want to kind of go through this and and dig into maybe why they did this and why I think it's kind of an indefensible move, given that they're the Lakers. Now, based on their current roster, their estimated luxury tax bill is going to be $33 million next season. That's about sixth in the NBA. Now, if you account for the fact that they have at least a few more roster spots, let's say they they fill out the roster with maybe you say one more veteran minimum player, that takes them to 13 players in the roster and a luxury tax of $42.3 million, which would you know put them over the bucks as the third highest tax-paying team in the league. So it's not like they're not paying tax, right? They're not like a, a Robert Sarver team that's completely neglecting to pay the tax. And it is true that if they added, say, $10 million of salary for Caruso, that would probably have resulted in something like around, I've seen estimates like about $40 million in terms of luxury tax payments on top of that 40. So now you're talking about 80 something million dollars. That's a lot of money. And a lot of people might not realize this, but the Lakers are actually not this team that's owned by the richest of owners. They're owned by Jeannie Buss and the Buss family. Their business is the Lakers. This is not an ownership group that has some other business and then owns a team on the side. This is an ownership group that actually relies upon the team for their wealth. So there's always been an understanding that they're maybe one of the least rich teams in the NBA. But here's the reality. They still have one of the most lucrative TV deals in the league. They basically print money from it. And you're talking about a world in which the fucking Warriors are paying an absurd $184 million in luxury taxes alone. And by the way, the Nets, probably their biggest competitor for the NBA championship next season, they're also paying $130 million in luxury taxes next season. So what the would fuck? you have LeB- Yeah. That's the thing. It's like these these numbers are so insane. They're like basically unprecedented in NBA history. So that's the competition out there. Those are probably your biggest competitors in the West and the East next year. And they're going all in financially. If you're the Los Angeles Lakers and you have gone all in on LeBron James, who's 37 years old, and you have made this big swing for Russell Westbrook, how do you say no to spending a little bit more? And at least even if you don't want Caruso, you have his salary to use in another trade. Just to let that go. Now you have no more salary filler at all for any future trades. So you're kind of stuck with this roster until those contracts run out in, in, in a couple of years, which at that point their books will be cleared. But if you want to improve the next two years, your avenues to do so are extremely limited beyond what's already on the roster. So to me, this was an indefensible move and something that I hope for the Lakers' sake doesn't actually end up biting them in the ass down the road. Knowing LeBron-led teams it absolutely will bite them on the ass at some point. It's just a matter of when, not if. Yeah, and I mean, you can already think of a situation in which they're facing a team with some sort of a guard that's just killing the likes of Kendrick Nunn, Russell Westbrook, Malik Monk, and all those other below-average defenders that the Lakers have. And you just think that basically for the cost of nothing but tax, they could have had one of the best on-ball defenders in the league. You know, that's a situation where, I mean, they face the Brooklyn Nets in the NBA Finals. They had a, the perfect guy to throw into James Harden, you know, a perfect guy to throw into Kyrie Irving. And now you don't have that guy at all. And it's literally for nothing. So this could be a situation where down the road they come to regret it. But again, I, I do want to be clear, though, given the financial constraints they had, I think Rob Polinka gets an A+. It's not like Rob Polinka. I'm sure he would pay him if he could. But that was what he was told. And 40 plus million dollars of luxury tax is no joke, to be clear as well. It's just that you're the Lakers and you're gone all in. So why you stop here? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you went to get Russell Westbrook, so you're right. You probably should have just gone all in. And Caruso would have been a great addition 
to have with this team just because he plays great perimeter defense. But it is what it is. So here we are. And that brings us then to the final thing I want to talk about. And I'm going to leave the floor entirely to Eric, who I know has a lot to say about this guy. Dennis Schroeder has officially signed a contract with the Boston Celtics. Easy money. Dennis Schroeder has just legitimized himself on the Mount Rushmore. And I say this not with glee. I say this with sorrow because I actually feel bad for the guy. On the Mount Rushmore of dumbass decisions of betting on yourself when you have easy money being offered to you. I think I said this to you the other day, AC. I asked you, hey, in Sri Lanka, do they have an idiom? A bird in the hand is worth two in a bush. And you was like, yeah, I'm sure. Something like that. This is a hallmark case. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. The Lakers were offering four years, $84 million to Dennis Schroeder. Dennis Schroeder was like, nah, nah. That's not what my market going to be. And his exact words were, I'm going to need them to treat me fair. This is what Dennis Schroeder said. I need them to be fair with me. And so I'm all about, and AC, you can vouch for this. I'm one of these guys. I want players to get all their worth, right? Hey, if you can hustle them for $50 million a year, get that bread. Secure that bag. But along with that comes... Shit, if you ain't worth it, you ain't worth it. Let that man sink or swim on the market. And that's that's exactly what happened <laughs> during this free agency. This man went from a contract of 21 million average per year being offered by the Lakers, which I might add was incredibly generous. Before this season, in which he was the starting point guard of the LA Lakers, he had never shown that he was a good starting player. His most success came the year before last with the OKC Thunder, where he was a sixth man and he averaged 18.9 points per game. So the Lakers got him under the auspices of he's going to be this elite sixth man coming in. He's going to bolster the bench. The issue where LeBron sits, Dennis is going to get some buckets and everything's going to be copacetic. But nah, Dennis was like, you know what? I'm coming up on a contract year and y'all going to run me my money and I'm going to start and I'm going to get, and these are Dennis and his agents words. I'm worth more than a hundred million for four years on the market. So that offer was rejected from the Lakers for 84 and Dennis was a free agent. So what happens in free agency? We see a bunch of point guards get signed. We see a guy like Lonzo Ball, who was a bit of a, reclamation project when a guy who was a high draft pick with the Lakers, number two, he went to the Pelicans. He had some ups and downs, but this last year he improved the shot. He's a very good defender. He went to the Bulls, $17 million a year. So Dennis Schroeder, his agent, they're like, oh, no, nah, we got that. What happens with Dennis Schroeder? Not a team around was offering anything, anything that the Lakers were offering in the range of $21 million a year. So what's happening with Dennis Schroeder? He joins a guy like Nerlens Noel, who turned down a four-year $70 million contract some years back. He joins a guy like Victor Oladipo, who turned down a $78 million contract and then subsequently was traded. And because of injuries, he's now signed to a contract that's much less. He joined the historical guy, like John Amici, who had a great season in the late 90s with the Orlando Magic. They try to re-up with him for like three years, $8 million. What the John Amici do? Turns it down. Never made a thing over $1.5 million in a season. So our boy Dennis Schroeder signed a $5.9 million contract for one year, which is nowhere around that average salary he was going to get with the Lakers per year. My man is on the Mount Rushmore of fumbling the damn bag. And that's all I have to say about him. The game is the game. 
Preach, Eric. That was uh, beautifully said, and I think it's a good place to stop. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in for another episode. If you like what you heard, please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe. And hey, you can always email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. Tell us what you think. Was Eric too harsh on Dennis Schroeder? Are we wrong about Westbrook? Let us know. Until next time, peace, guys. Deuces!